You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Since 1987 and the early days of the Greenspan era, when the new Fed chair took a series of extraordinary measures in response to Black Monday, investors have slowly become conditioned to believe in what has become known as the central bank put, a fancy name for an implicit backstop to any significant market decline which the incumbent Fed chair would use to ride to the rescue of falling markets. The Greenspan put begat the Bernanke put, which in turn morphed into the Yellen put, and along the way, investors grew comfortable that were anything untoward to befall markets, the immediate reaction of the Federal Reserve and its peers across the globe would be to cut interest rates and, in later years, inject trillions of dollars in stimulus in order to stabilise misbehaving asset prices. That backstop has been money good for 30 years, but, having reached the zero bound, markets have begun, at the margin at least, to wonder what any future central bank put may look like. With the Federal Reserve seemingly set on a course of tightening, with an additional promise to normalise its balance sheet and a series of recessions in major economies by the laws of cyclicality getting closer by the day, President Trump has finally nominated Jerome Powell to replace Janet Yellen as the new Fed chair. But what do we know about the incoming chairman? What does he inherit and what likely path might he take in the coming years, in both good times and bad? Joining me to answer those questions are Danielle DiMartino Booth, author of Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America, and Miles Kimball, Eaton Professor of Economics at Colorado Boulder University, as we try to understand what has gone before and what lies ahead for the most powerful organization on Earth. As always, the committee is prepared to adjust monetary policy as needed to achieve its inflation and employment objectives. We believe that strong and timely action is urgently needed to stabilize our markets and our economy. The question is, of course, where do we go from here? This week, on Adventures in Finance, Unconventional Orthodoxy, Understanding the Tools of the Federal Reserve. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Today is the 9th of November 2017, and welcome to episode 41 of Adventures in Finance. In a completely different country to me, I'm delighted to say, is trusty producer James. Mate, how are you? Yeah, doing very well. Uh, I must say, it's, it's like I'm feeling your presence getting closer. Uh, you, you, I don't think you're on the other side of the world right now. Are you feeling a disturbance in the force? There is a distinct disturbance in the force yes, right well, now. I will be coming to disturb you in person at the end of the week, so just make sure the place is tidy, will you? Because I'm sick of coming home to finding your mess all over the place. Well, you know, I'll, I'll do what I can. All right. Now, um, first up this week, I wanted to 
just refer back to last week now. Um, we did our piece on Tesla last week, and, and I put out a very genuine and open call for anybody to come on and uh, present the bull case for us. Now, I've had a ton of emails from people asking to make sure that we keep them posted. So uh, here's what I have to say about that. So far, um, we have yet to have somebody come on and deliver us a bull case for Tesla, the company. Now, plenty of people have said, well, this is a new paradigm. Um, you don't get it. Stocks are going higher. And I, I totally understand that argument for stocks in general. But what I'm looking for is someone to address why Tesla, the company, is going to succeed rather than Tesla, the stock price is going to go up. Because um, stock prices, when they're all going up, all tend to go up. But when companies go bad, uh, stock prices tend to go down rather quickly. Now, we had uh, a great email from a listener called Mache from Southampton in the UK. And um, he pointed out, uh, quite rightly, he said that Mark is absolutely correct in everything he said. Uh, but none of his arguments matter due to a fundamental paradigm shift in financial markets. And, and what he went on to say is that uh, Elon being a fantastic marketer and promoter and the fact that QE is going to lift markets higher means that the price for Tesla is going to go up for years to come. And um, whilst I appreciate that uh, laying out of the bull case, I really am looking for someone to come and tell me why uh, the particular issues that Mark brings up in terms of competition coming from other companies, in terms of battery technology being obsolete, in terms of poor financials. Um, I, I really need someone to come and tell us why the company is going to succeed, not why the stock markets are going up. So I reiterate the call. Please, anybody out there who uh, can come on and make the case for why Tesla, the company, is going to succeed, we would welcome your presence on Adventures in Finance, and we will give you the microphone to uh, to lay out your case. But in the meantime, I, I have to call it and say that uh, I've yet to see anybody debunk what Mark says. Hopefully this week will bring a solution to that. Now, this week uh, on Adventures in Finance, uh, later on we'll, we'll have our regular Things I Got Wrong uh, feature and we will be sending somebody up to Mars to join uh, the luminaries uh, up there already, plus after last week, a space sex robot, which uh, which might make people want to take the trip more. I don't know. We'll have to see. But the main feature this week revolves around our old friends at the Federal Reserve. Now, with the appointment of uh, Jerome Powell as the new Fed chair by President Trump last week, uh, there are a lot of opinions about whether the Fed is going to fundamentally change. Uh, does this herald the start of a new era? Does this herald a changing course? And uh, we really don't know. But to answer that question, we have two excellent guests on this week. The first is uh, no stranger to Real Vision subscribers, Danielle DiMartino Booth of Money Strong LLC and the author of the fabulous book Fed Up is going to join us. Uh, she was a Fed insider working closely with Richard Fisher at the Dallas Fed. Uh, Danielle's views on the Fed are well known, but uh, she always lays them out very clearly and very thoughtfully. And taking the other side of the argument, uh, Danielle, we have uh, Miles Kimball, Eaton Professor of Economics at the University of Colorado Boulder. He's a quartz columnist and an independent blogger on economics, politics, religion, and obesity. I'm not quite sure how those last two fit in with economics and politics. Perhaps you'll tell us. So without further ado, here's Danielle. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. You know, these days, anybody who wants to talk about the Fed, you're the first point to call for most of them, I would imagine. You, you, your door must be getting beaten down these days. It's, uh, yes, the knuckles are, are, are wrapping a hole into my door. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, look, I, re I read the piece you wrote about uh, Jay Powell the other week, and I thought it was uh, an incredibly well-written and very balanced uh, view of uh, of your thoughts on what he would and wouldn't be able to do. So, so I thought maybe we'd kick off. Perhaps you could outline what your thoughts were when you heard he was being uh, being appointed. 
Well, let's start with the superficial. Um, Jay Powell voted for the final round of quantitative easing. Now, he was green behind the ears. He didn't know much about economics. He was the new kid on the committee, and he has publicly uh, stated that he regretted voting for it uh, looking back. But that is nevertheless a black eye, and it is why the financial markets have been so comforted in his appointment and drawn the quick conclusion that he will be some kind of a Yellen clone and continue on with more of the same, which is lower for longer. So the, the thing I found interesting about that, this idea that someone new would be kind of swayed into voting for the status quo and be kind of, you know, I, I hesitate to use the term bullied, but let's, let's, let's use it for want of a better phrase. Uh, given the fact that um, with Dudley now retiring, uh, Yellen potentially leaving if she doesn't get renominated, although she could stay on until 2024 if she chose to, uh, it, it feels as though the entire FOMC voting board is going to be made up of new kids. Uh, and so it's going to be interesting. Your thoughts on what the, the, the sort of overwhelming sense is that's going to be, which way are these guys going to be directed if it's all changed, do you think? Well, um, let me take you back to a scene in Fed Up really quickly, and that is that Richard Fisher, in December 2008, initially voted against taking interest rates to the zero bound. And this wouldn't have come to mind if you hadn't used the word bullied. And he was, he was bullied, in a sense, into changing his vote, which he did after lunch, and they came back and took a second vote. So that impetus was alive and well, and I don't consider Richard Fisher to be a malleable individual. Sure. So we have to give Powell some credit for the culture he stepped into. But what you've just described, especially with yesterday's announcement, well, especially with the most recent announcement that Bill Dudley would be stepping down from the New York Fed, and the fact that Lael Brainerd wants to leave, and that Yellen will probably leave in February, you're talking about the ability to reinvent the culture around that table, the FOMC, because the district bank presidents since 1996, when, the, when those on the board quit dissenting, they took the baton and began dissenting. So you're talking about quite the platform on which to make the bully go back out to the schoolyard and stay there. Well, well, exactly. But but I guess the question then becomes, what does the bully need to engineer? Because if the bully wants to direct the board to be hawkish, to hike rates, to try and return to some semblance of normality, one would presume that would be reasonably simple to do, given the, the, the sort of set of circumstance we've just outlined. But were things to change very quickly? Were markets to get nervous about this hawkishness, which, let's face it, at these levels they should. If, if, if the Fed are determined to be somewhat normal again, the market should be very, very worried. What then happens? Because the pressure is going to be on the Fed to do something about it. Um, it does it mean that that pressure, which has really not had to be too severe to get them to, to cut rates and start uh, stimulating, does that change the dynamic, do you think? Will they be harder to convince to, to, to make an about-face? I think that the challenge is almost insurmountable. And the only reason I say almost is because that gives, that gives us all a sliver of hope. If, if Jay Powell's experience with the financial markets 
and that was the majority of his career, have taught him anything, it's that the business cycle cannot be completely eradicated. So if he steps into office knowing that, that he's taking the helm when it's the third longest expansion in U.S. history and the second longest bull market in U.S. history, and that therefore a recession and a correction in the markets is an inevitability, that mindset would bode well for him as pressure increases for the Fed to step in and act, because therein will be the inflection point and the opportunity for the Fed to do exactly the opposite. Well, this idea of doing something versus doing the right thing, I think, is is crucial here because I was heartened with um, with Jay Powell's experience in the real world in financial markets. You know, he has a lot of the kind of experience that the the naysayers have been have been throwing brickbats at the Fed for for a long, long time. But again, you know, if you look at the about faces that. Um, that Alan Greenspan has made over his career in terms of you know whether it's his thoughts on gold, whether it's his thoughts on normally functioning markets, it seems that once you walk through the door at the Mariner Eccles building, you have to check everything that you once thought there, right there, before you go through security. They'll take it off you and they won't give it back to you once you've gone through the scanner. And so all the real-world experience that J-PAL may have, once he's in that seat and either rates need to be cut or markets need to be steadied, what kind of man does it take to say, you know what, I understand what you think we're going to do, I understand what history has conditioned you to believe we will do, but in the real world, I don't think it's in our best interest for us to do this, and I'm going to stand pat. Well, it would take a very strong individual. It would require an extremely strong constitution, but by the same token, he's not stepping onto a committee that is pre-populated with those who have left their real-world experience behind. He's being joined by Randy Quarles, somebody else who has been in the real world. And he's joined the Federal Reserve Board at a time of tremendous change. And the opportunity will be there because there won't be anybody left in the room who is necessarily hypnotized into believing that they have to do something. My hope is that Powell is quiet but strong in his leadership and understands that it is the opposite of Ben Bernanke's, the title of his memoir, that it is to not act that requires a bigger man, greater leaders than the courage to act. Yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I just, I just wonder when, when you're in that seat, ultimately uh, the buck, literally and figuratively, I guess, stops with you. Um, and so you know, if markets start to wobble, every eye in the world is going to turn to this guy. And it, what does it take to stand up there and say, hey, look, I know you expect us to do something here, but you know what? This just doesn't warrant any action from the Fed. The business cycle is what it is, and we're going to let this thing play out. I just, I really find it hard to believe that anyone would have the guts to stand there in that kind of spotlight and say, hey, don't look at us. This is, this is a natural down cycle of a market and we're going to let it play out. Do you, do you think he slash they can do that? Well, it, it's, not, it's not pure tough medicine. Recognizing the 
recognizing truth behind the Fed's own staff papers that concluded that quantitative easing accomplished nothing. There's really no harm, no foul in that optically. Recognizing that interest rates at the zero bound did more harm to savers, well, you could also sell that. If, and this is the critical component, if liquidity dries up and goes away again, which we know on the heels of Dodd-Frank and Basel and depleted bond inventories, et cetera, we know the chances are the next major correction in markets is going to be accompanied by a drought of liquidity. If you can connect all of those pieces and say to the world, it is the liquidity facilities that were rolled out by the New York Fed that saved the financial system, not zero interest rates and not quantitative easing, and we stand ready to redeploy liquidity vehicles right now and leave the rest of the fiscal authorities, which is what we should have done round one, allow us to learn by our, learn from our mistakes and let us put to work what we know worked in the aftermath of the great financial crisis. And those were those liquidity facilities, the swap lines, opening up the commercial uh, back securities market. These are the things that worked. Yeah, that, 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 that's a fantastic point. And the, the, the question then becomes, I think, do because once they come out and say that, and I agree, that would be exactly the right thing to do, but they're essentially saying that the last, my last two predecessors screwed this up royally and I'm here to fix it. And it seems to me that it's a, they're fairly closed ranks amongst uh, Fed governors, even though they might talk... Uh, when they're giving speeches, they might say differing things, and we've all seen the amount of ink that's spilled when one of them says one thing at a lunch and the next day someone says something else. But to stand up there and say, basically, you know, Ben and Janet screwed this thing up and they shouldn't have done this uh, and we shouldn't have done this and we've got it wrong, that's a hell of a mea culpa, the kind of which we've never seen anything remotely close to that coming out of the Federal Reserve. Well, we never have, but bear in mind, Paul Volcker had something of an uphill battle in front of him way back when, when it was DEFCON 1. And just maybe what we should all do is jointly get our pennies together and buy a stamp and send him a video of the new CEO of General Electric's recent interview on CNBC, where in a very diplomatic and genteel fashion, he nevertheless threw his predecessors under the bus. He was able to do that without being uncivil. He was able to do that in, 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 in an acceptable way to the markets to say, we're going to take General Electric down to the studs, re-examine everything we do, and only accept and keep what works. And with any luck, Grant, because the economy is accelerating at this juncture, with any luck, we're at a 2% Fed funds rate when that moment happens. They hike in December. They hike one more time in 2018. They invert the yield curve, and they stop. But with any luck, we stay at that 2% line and never breach it again. I think well, I, he has the opportunity, but you're right. It will take a huge, a very strong individual to do this and do this gracefully. Yeah, look, it's 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 exactly what it requires. And look, maybe J-PAL is the, the the pair of hands we need to do that. I, I don't know, and I guess time will tell. But you know, I, I, you and I were uh, were both speaking at a conference in Vegas recently, and and you gave a, a speech to that room 
which ended up with you getting a standing ovation, which I've never seen before at, at these events. Um, and that f- that room was filled as I stood at the back and, and watched. Uh, and, and no disrespect to the people in there because I'm one of them, but there wasn't there wasn't a head in that room that wasn't either graying or bald. And uh, yeah, there were a lot of angry savers in that room, um, angry savers, angry voters who listened to you talk about where the Fed had gone wrong and, and to your point just now about having to rebuild it from the studs up, that anger is is palpable. So it, again, it just feels like there's another little uh, aspect to this that, um, that Jay Powell is going to have to deal with and that he really does need to try and placate those savers and he does need to get rates higher. Um, but as you said at the top of this, we're in the we're in the third longest expansion in history. We're in the second longest bull market in history, and both of those we know will come to an end. Um, how does how does he? If you were in his position, how do you try and navigate that really really tricky stretch of water that he's got to try and cover, you know, well, guide his boat through? So, so, so Grant, you were in the room then, and you know that the first smattering of applause that I got was when I made the following statement. Maybe it's time that the Fed stop enabling congressional misfeasance and the members of Congress start earning their salaries. And that was what got spontaneous applause out of that audience of gray-haired people, of whom Jay Powell is one. He's in that same cohort. He's got lots of gray hair. So There have not been central bankers with the spine to force Congress to think outside of the box and do what it needs to do during times of fiscal duress. If you have a strong enough individual, and I know we're putting a lot of weight on this one man, but if you have a strong enough individual to say, this isn't in my toolkit, QE didn't work, the zero bound didn't work. That means that negative interest rates would be even worse. Congress, you do your job. I'll do mine with what I know works. You do yours. And I, that's I, what it would take. I, I, I completely agree. I, I, just, I, just wonder, um, I just wonder when you are when you're standing there, it's not just Congress looking to you. It's 330, American, uh, 330 million Americans looking to you, plus the inhabitants of just about every other uh, Western democracy on the face of the planet looking at you to do something. Um, because that's what they've been conditioned to expect, and I just, you know, I just wonder what the fallout would be. And perhaps, perhaps you've got some ideas on this. If that one person that everybody's looking to, because they look to Janet and they look to Ben and they look to Alan, uh, if this guy suddenly says, "Hey, don't look at me. This is not on me. This is on Congress," which we all know is is completely dysfunctional right now, um, what do you think happens? to global financial markets if, if he does have the spine, as you said, to, to stand up and do that? Well, I think things get messy. But, Grant, things are going to get messy anyways. Right, yeah. That's a good I point. mean, it's going to – I mean, it's not that I'm naive. I understand that there's this big black box called the Chinese debt market. I understand that, that the markets are interconnected, that this is a global phenomenon, that there's a Bank of Japan and an ECB and a Bank of England and a People's Bank of China. I understand that there are many moving pieces here and that it is naive to think that you can make monetary policy in a vacuum for the United States of America. But by the same token, more of the same is just going to make things worse. I, I, if, if you are able to articulate, and that is what I'm writing about right now, I'm writing about 
the moment that Martin Luther went back to the New Testament and took the Greek word and translated it properly into plain spoken English and how that revolutionized the world and took the agenda away from the priests who were warping Latin to keep people in the dark. If you have somebody who's plain spoken enough, who's not a PhD in economics, Powell is not, who works for a salary of $1 in order to consult the Congress on the, on the dangers of the U.S. defaulting on its debt, if you have somebody with no agenda, it's your only shot at finding a strong enough individual. There is no silver bullet at this point. Commercial real estate's in a bubble. The stock market's in a bubble. Volatility, short volatility, is in the biggest bubble known to God and mankind. The bond market is in a monumental bubble, but we're immune to bubbles. We're anesthetized. But that doesn't take it away from the need for a new leader because the global inequality situation that has been created by three decades of a financial illiteracy campaign has to stop at some point or it will bubble over and morph from being a currency war to a world war. But it has to start with one man, and I can be hopeful that it's Jay Powell. Well, I, I hope you're right. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating that you, when you talk about that stuff and you broaden it out, it makes you realize that that one man standing up and, uh, and basically saying that the, the policies of his predecessors were wrong, suddenly they then own all those things you've talked about, that they 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 all come back to the Federal Reserve. And the critics, uh, yourself included, have have pointed at these policies and said, this is not just about monetary policy. This is about all those things. This is all about global inequality. This is all about causing bubbles. All those things, suddenly, that one man standing up and saying, you know what, we're not doing that anymore. Those policies were wrong. That then brings upon the institution ownership for all those ills in the world. And it's it would be a hell of a man to stand up and do that? Well, I mean, it's uh, if, if and when you consider the alternative, see, I, 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 I just can't go there. I just can't go there. I, I can't sit there with a straight face and nod my head to the formal, formal monetization of the debt and the eradication of cash to take us one step further down this road to perdition. I just can't do it. It's always fun talking to Danielle. You know, she has a very real-world approach uh, to the Fed, having worked inside the Dallas Fed closely with Richard Fisher. But to change things up, uh, my next guest is going to come at this from a completely different angle. Joining me now is Miles Kimball, Eaton Professor of Economics at the University of Colorado Boulder. He's a quartz columnist and an independent blogger on economics. And Miles, as I said, takes a much more academic view of the Fed. Uh, Miles, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about the Federal Reserve. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's uh, it, it's such a popular topic, and it's something that um, over the last sort of decade or so, particularly everybody involved in markets really has to have an opinion on the Fed. And um, it seems that, that, that those opinions have been split pretty much into two camps. There are the people that think the Fed are the root cause of all the evils uh, in markets and society as a whole, and there are those who believe that the Fed are either a necessary evil or, or are doing uh, great work. Um, obviously, in the latter camp fall 
mostly Fed Reserve governors and board members, and in the former, uh, full sort of old investors like me who've been around long enough to remember a time when we didn't have to worry about such things. But um, I really wanted to get your thoughts on on the Fed, uh, particularly given the incoming uh, Fed chair, Jerome Powell. Uh, so I guess let's kick things off with your thoughts on on Powell and how you suspect he may he may change things uh, coming after Janet Yellen. Oh, well, I, I mean, I think actually he, he won't change things too much. And so the other question you were raising about your view of the Fed is a good one, because I, I think he does represent continuity. And I, I've got to say, I'm, I'm a great admirer of the Fed. I think they did, um, did actually, in many ways, a good job in response to the financial crisis and the Great Recession. And and I've got to be very careful in what I mean by that. I think that if we had another crisis like that or in the next recession, if they do as well as they did this past time, it would be terrible. It would be a a very, very, very bad job. However, it's it's tough when in real time you're facing new things to, to work things out and figure out a workable strategy. So given you know, under under fire in the heat of combat, I, I think the Fed actually acquitted itself pretty well. But the the thing I want to stress is how hard they they ought to be working like dogs now to get ready for the next crisis. And we should expect much, 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 much better performance from them next time. Well, there's a whole bunch of very, very interesting points you bring up there. I mean, I I would agree with you. I'm one of these guys. I I hold my hand up that that merrily sits on the sides, throwing brickbats at the Fed and criticise them for all kinds of things, uh, and would never in a million years wish to be in their shoes. And and, and I totally appreciate the 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 basically impossible job they have to do. And I I would certainly agree with you that um, in the white hot heat of uh, 2007-8. They absolutely did do a good job. You know, my, my my issues, I guess, come with the the increased stimulus QE two and Operation Twist and QE three. This this idea that uh, they were the answer and the solution to to any ailing of the economy. Um, but but your 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 suggestion that uh, perhaps uh, Jay Powell won't actually change anything and, and is represents continuation, I find interesting because a lot of the talk has been that he will be hawkish and that he will. Uh, take the reins from uh, from Janet Yellen and actually push the Fed forwards in this mission to try and normalise whatever that may mean. Now, uh, how how do you think he will he will come in and and represent uh, a continuation of the status quo? Well, I should I should be very careful to say my knowledge of uh, Jay Powell is really limited to news reports as well. So uh, so I get my knowledge of him from from folks like you, but. I I take it as uh, uh, a, a limit of what I know that he seems to be a consensus person, and uh, he seems to have have been a part of forming the, the consensus of what the Fed has been doing uh, all, already, and uh, so I think it will be a continuation. But but I think the thing that I would emphasize and then I think is is a very interesting thing to try to for journalists uh, in your position to figure out is his relationship to the staff so so a lot of the drama of the Fed is about the 
chair of the Fed. And to the extent people go beyond that, they talk about the folks who are in the Federal Open Market Committee and who therefore have a vote on Federal Reserve policy. But in many ways, the uh, Federal Reserve staff, the PhD economists especially, who are who are setting the agenda for what the Fed decides. And, and I think, um, you know, I actually don't think this phase of normalization is, uh, is, is the crucial phase. The, the, the crucial thing is what the Fed is going to do in the next recession and, or the next financial crisis or, or um, what, it, what it's going to do about uh, requiring banks to have high capital requirements to avoid another capital crisis. Those are, those are much, much more crucial than exactly how fast the Fed increases interest rates right now. And when, when you talk about the next recession, how the Fed responds depends a lot on the staff's preparation between now and then and, and what they figure out and what they, what they start working out in terms of new tools that the Fed has never used before, not even in this past crisis. Uh, there's, there's so much you bring up there that, that I'm fascinated with. Uh, but I want to actually go back to, to your first comment, just talking about um, how you said that the, perhaps if they if they use the same um, techniques they used in the last crisis, the next one, it would be a terrible job. And I think you, you touched on there this idea that they're having to respond to things as they happen and, and come up with solutions to new problems. But if we but if we do that, just playing devil's advocate here, a lot of what's been done since the crisis, a lot of uh, what it seems the economy is really predicated on, is is extending credit, is to try and get people borrowing again, is to try and encourage people to borrow more and invest, and and it would seem almost impossible to encourage that additional lending at the same time, uh, crimp the bank's ability. To, to lend. And I, and I think if you explicitly go out and say to the banks, hey, look, you're on the hook. Um, there's no more bailouts. If you, if, you, if you screw this up, then it's your shareholders that are, that are going to go down with the ship. Uh, I can only imagine the speed with which banks would massively contract their lending. What, what sort of effect does that have uh, on the economy, I wonder? Because it seems to me it would be incredibly deleterious. Well, the first thing to say is that Right now, the Fed is trying to get banks to contract their lending. That's what it is when you raise interest rates. If the Fed is in the raising rate part of the cycle, it is actively trying to get uh, banks to lend less. That's part of what it means to raise rates. Um, on the other side, I would say the um, high capital requirements uh, go along really well with low interest rates. The Fed can cut interest rates far enough so that banks will lend a lot. It's not just banks lend a lot. There will be enough lending. There will be enough investment, uh, regardless of how high the capital requirements are. And so the, the Fed has a very powerful tool to increase the amount of investment in the economy. It's called cutting rates. And so it can that'll work even if you have banks that are very safe. You can say banks, you've got to be, uh, you know, you you got to risk your own stockholders' money and not taxpayers' money. Uh, and sure, if, if they got to risk their own stockholders' money instead of taxpayers' money, they maybe take fewer risks. But you lower rates enough, and they'll take the risks we need them to take for the sake of the economy. 
But as it is now, the Fed is actively trying to get uh, lending to go down. That's what raising rates is. Yeah, I, I understand that. I think, I guess my point, at, at this level of interest rates, at this level of absolute rates, so close to the zero bound, the the difference that a cut makes um, versus a difference that a hike makes, particularly after such a long period of, of essentially zero interest rates, uh, going from 1% to 1.5% on the downside is not going to spur a massive increase in lending, whereas going from 1% to 2% on the upside is going to massively constrain lending and also put a significant amount of pressure um, on the people who have borrowed at those low rates. So it seems to me that the, the, the difference between the two directions uh, is is in no way equal at, the, at this sort of absolute well, level. Well, notice the example you gave. You talked about going half a percentage point down and a whole percentage point up. And, of course, those are one is twice as big as the other. So, But... Uh, but if you go a whole percentage down, that does roughly as much as in the other direction, a whole percent up. Cutting rates really is very powerful because there, there's a logic that needs to be understood about how powerful it is to cut rates uh, regardless of how low you've already gone. And, and that's the fact that, you know, you say there are people who are hurt by rate cuts if you're you know, if you have a big pile of money earning an interest rate and that interest rate goes down, you're not going to like that. On the other hand, um, people, when people have a, when one person has a big pile of money earning an interest rate, somebody else borrowed from them. Somebody else was borrowing that money from them. If the interest rate goes down, then the borrowers helped. And so to the, to, to the extent that any, Anybody who's got a big pile of money is hurt by a lower interest rate. There's somebody else on the other side of that transaction who was borrowing money who's helped by the lower interest rate. And the person who is borrowing, who is helped by that interest rate, is likely to be better at spending than the person who, who had the big pile of money. Because it, how did they get the big pile of money? It was partly by not being much of a spender. So, so that... That means, you know, so people cherry pick and they'll point to just, oh, that person is hurt by the lower interest rates. But there's always two sides to every transaction. You add up both sides to every transaction. Every borrower-lender relationship is going to stimulate the economy when you cut interest rates. Because however much the, the lender is hurt by the lower interest rate, the borrower is going to be helped Equally, and that bar and that borrower is going to increase spending more than the spend than the than the lender reduces spending. So it's just not true that because some people are hurt by lower interest rates that you don't get stimulus. Well, you know, it's Ben Bernanke said about uh, quantitative easing. He he said uh, the trouble with quantitative easing is it it works in practice but not in theory, which I thought was very very interesting. But when you and he's right. But when you when you talk about these things. Um, from a theoretical basis, I think that the the lowering of interest rates, you talk about people with a big pile of money and, and the people that have assets, uh, have capital, yes, they've they've benefited tremendously from this this low rates. It's, it's the people that don't have a big pile of cash. Um, yes, the, 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 the value of their house may have gone up, um, but really the only way for them to take advantage of that is to is to take some money out of that appreciation and lever themselves up again at low interest rates 
potentially creating problems down the pike. And then you look at, uh, from the corporate side, we've seen just a massive amount of uh, borrowing by corporations, most of which seems to have been used to buy back their own shares. Again, you know, financial, it's financial engineering to try and boost their share price as opposed to taking money and investing it in the real economy. Now, what do you think about this idea that, in theory, uh, this all works perfectly well, but in practice, on the other way around, when we're trying to reverse QE particularly, uh, the, the the practical side of it may not go as smoothly as perhaps theory would suggest. Well, well, well now uh, there are a lot there are a lot of things that you said. That, I mean, first thing is, you know, you got to recognize a lot of the things you're talking about that, like the companies uh, sitting on big piles of money and not investing them, maybe even borrowing to get a bigger pile of money and just sending it back to the to the shareholders, that was that was about the fact that the Fed didn't go go below zero. I mean, if the Fed had gone below zero, I mean, think you're a company. Uh, if, if instead of having a pile of money that was kind of earning close to zero, you'd had a pile of money that was was shrinking. You know, it was earning minus four percent. Uh, you might have found some investment opportunities that were better than having your money shrink at 4, 4%. And so that's, that's one of the ways you stimulate investment with uh, negative interest rates is you, you make, there are some investment opportunities that once you account for risk, it's like, ah, oh, there's risk. Uh, they, they, don't look any, they don't look as attractive as just having the money sit there earning zero. But even with the risk, you're scared of the risk. But you know, having it shrink at 4% uh, for sure doesn't sound so great. So you go out and take the risk. You know, the, the point of negative interest rates is actually for people to avoid them. You don't want anyone to actually earn negative interest rate. The, the, the point is to get people to go out and invest and build factories and write software and, do, you know, do things with their funds instead of trying to leave them sitting, uh, you know, Earning, earning some paltry amount of interest. And, but, you know, zero might seem paltry, but it still looked attractive relative to taking risks. Uh, you know, people say, there's a funny thing about the uh, phrase risk-taking. It's one of those phrases where you can get the same person within 30 minutes, talk about it as a good thing and as a bad thing, you know, but, but especially what, what makes for a recession is often when people are taking too few risks. You know, you get you get too much of a boom when people are taking too many risks sometimes. But a in a recession, like you got to prod people to take some more risks. And having the only alternative to going out and you know being tough and taking some risks as as uh, you know losing money for sure is. Uh, is some, something you might have to do to get enough risk taken in the economy to get out of a recession. But this, I mean, we're, we're talking now about negative 4% interest rates. I mean, we're not talking about you know, negative 25 basis points or, or yeah. 50 basis yeah, points. Yeah, as this I is... said, interest rates can go as low as they need to go. There is no limit to how low interest rates can go. Well, maybe. We'll, we, we may well test that theory, I suspect, in uh, the next time we have a recession. <laughs> but, you know, I... I always think about this in theory and then think, well, that's fine. But once you, if you take those 550 basis points and they straddle the zero bound, so you end up with negative 3%, 
to, to the human beings who interact and make up the economy, that's not just a normal 550-point basis grind. It, their, their mindset is going to change. And I don't think we understand how it's going to change if interest rates are negative 3%. I think there's a human component in this and human behaviour is not going to – the response is not going to be the same to cutting to minus 3 as it would be cutting from 6 to 50 basis points. And I think we know something about that now. So the power to guarantee that you can get out of the recession probably requires that you go even lower. However, a lot of psychological stuff about negative interest rates comes up even in these very mild negative interest rates that have been happening in Europe. And so you, you see it all there now. And so uh, I think that's actually very reassuring. On the one hand, you, you see exactly the kind of political flack that you'd expect. You, you know, you have plenty of people complaining about negative rates in Europe, but it's not like the sky has come crashing down. It's not like commercial processes have totally come tumbling to the ground. I mean, you see interesting stuff like people prepaying their taxes and stuff. Uh, you know, if the tax code effectively gives them a zero interest rate, now they're going to be eager to pay their taxes early instead of wanting to pay their taxes as late as possible. So, I mean, there's stuff happening and, and there's people complaining. But, you know, a lot of the predictions of disaster uh, that, that that people made about what going negative interest rates would do haven't happened in Europe. So, so I think you can see how people make those those um, psychological adjustments. I mean, that's 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 actually more your department than mine because it's like you know journalists uh, interviewing people and figuring out, well, okay, yeah, you didn't like the negative interest rates, we get it, but but how did you adjust to them? Those are super interesting stories. And, and they're knowable now, and people did, in fact, adjust. But, but this, again, just going back to this same point uh, about how people adjust to them and, and the difference uh, post-negative interest rates, you know, w- would you contend that none of what we're seeing in terms of the social aspects of this is a reflection of negative interest rate policy, you know, what we've seen in Britain, what we've seen in uh, Spain, uh, particularly when we talk about Europe, um, and, and to some extent what we've seen in the U.S. with, with, uh, with the Trump election, which took everybody by surprise. Do, do, you, do you think there is no direct link between zero slash negative interest rate policy and, and this being some sort, of, uh, some sort of pressure valve to let that out? Well, I love it that you asked that because the answer is, you know, basically we had Brexit, we had, we've had the political troubles in Europe, We've had the uh, even the election of Donald Trump, and it has a lot to do with the fact that we didn't have negative interest rates. It, if we had had minus four percent, minus six percent in 2009, we would have had a robust recovery by mid 2010. If we had had a robust recovery by mid 2010, I promise you, politics would have been different in the United States. If there had been a robust recovery by mid-2010 in Europe. I promise you, politics in Europe would have been different if there had been a robust recovery in the United Kingdom by mid-2010 because they'd gone to minus 6% interest rates. Politics would have been different. So the, the fact that central banks didn't stimulate the economy quickly enough, did not bring quick enough recovery, caused a lot of problems. In other words, 
if you know, like I said at the beginning, I have I have a lot of sympathy for folks who are in the heat of the battle and having to deal deal with things in in real time. But if we could run, rerun history, the Fed should have had robust recovery by 2010. No excuse for it not to if it could rerun history. Miles, I, we, we've run out of time. I, I have to say, I mean, look, I, I, I disagree with just about everything you've said, but I've loved every second of this conversation and I cannot thank you enough for, for coming on uh, and having this conversation. It's been hugely enjoyable and, and incredibly enlightening. So thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you. This has been great fun. Okay, well, there you have it. Uh, two very, very different views. I, I, you know, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed both conversations. I, you know, talking to Miles... Um, as I said, I, I disagree with just about everything he said, but it was a fabulous conversation nonetheless to, to, to challenge those, those ideas and, and to hear your own notions about this stuff challenged is, uh, is always a very useful exercise. I, I don't think I'm ever going to change Miles's mind and I'm sure as hell he's not ever going to change mine. It was a fascinating conversation nonetheless. But in podcasts, as in life, we move inexorably forward. Uh, and as you may know, we like every week to ask our guests to give us something a little extra. Sometimes they give us a, a life lesson in what they got wrong uh, and the lessons they learned from it in, in their lives or the markets. And sometimes we get them to tell us what they just couldn't live without on a one-way trip to Mars. And this week, seeing as we have two fantastic contributors, we thought we'd do something a little bit different. So we're going to get one of them to tell us what they got wrong and the other one we will send to Mars. So first up on a one-way trip to Mars is Danielle. So, Danielle, we are going to do the unthinkable, and I'm going to send you on one of Elon's rockets up to Mars. Now, I, I, I've been assured that uh, this particular rocket was not made by hand. It's all produced on a production line. It's perfectly safe. Uh, and in that rocket with you, I'm going to allow you to take the following things. I'm going to allow you to take a book, a CD, a DVD, a piece of technology, and an inspirational quote, which James, our producer, is going to lovingly needlepoint for you to make sure that you can hang it on the wall of the rocket. So... Let's kick off with the book. Which, uh, which book would you take with you on your trip to Mars? Uh, I would take The Lords of Finance with me. It is the seminal work that had the greatest influence uh, on my life. It tells you about uh, what, can happen, what can happen when hubris uh, collides with academics. I, I love that you chose that book. That, that, that is in the short list for me, too. I think that's an exceptional book. Anyone who hasn't read it should absolutely read The Laws of Finance. It's a tremendous work. Uh, okay, I'm going to move to the DVD now. Which movie are you going to take up with you? I would take The Shawshank Redemption with me. It is, it is one of the mantras by which I've lived my life, get busy living or get busy dying. When life presents you with difficult situations, you can either acquiesce and roll over and die, or you can stand up and make a difference. And hopefully you have the courage to do that. And that is one of the truly inspiring films that always gets me going when I have my doubts. You know, you know there's no tunneling out of this trip to Mars, right? You, you, you do not want to dig a tunnel because I think life on the outside of this little cocoon we're going to place you in will be way worse than life inside. Well, um, I'm, afraid of, I'm afraid of heights, so the odds are I'd be in shock anyways. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, this is always my favorite question. Music. Which, which CD, which piece of music are you going to take with you to Mars? Well, I, I would take uh, the Rolling Stones music with me, uh, either uh, their first best hit, greatest hits album, Sympathy for the Devil, happens to be my, my favorite song in the world. I, I find it to be a refreshing and 
honest glimpse into the depths of human nature. So I would take Mick Jagger right there with me. Well, you know what? So far, listen, you, you, I can, I, everything you've picked so far would be on my shortlist. So this is this is great. Now, you've only got uh, a piece of technology and a needlepoint quote left. So let's do the technology. What would you take with you? Well, I do like my sleep. So when you're in outer space, you lose touch with time. So I would take a battery-powered clock. A battery-powered clock? To make clock. sure I stayed steady. <laughs> okay. All right. That's one of the more unusual. That's uh, one of the well, more unusual I, I, pieces. Presumably, connectivity and reception are terrible in outer space. So, well, most, look, most the, technology would be moot. I think. I think Carl Bass has a phone up there. Um, uh, I forget what else we've had at technology, but I do know there is a sex robot up there. So, watch out for that. Um, oh my! Now, <laughs> don't ask. Don't ask. Just listen to last week's podcast. <laughs> uh, okay. Last but not least, inspirational quote. What would you have, James Needlepoint, for you, James Pennant, already, my friend? Uh, this is a, uh, a quote that I, uh, the, the sticky in, in the first generation of 3M stickies long since died. I taped it and retaped it and retaped it onto my Bloomberg terminal at DLJ way back in the day. Pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. Never forget that. Okay. Now, who else? No, I think that's one of Stan Druckenmiller's favorite quotes, isn't it? Is that, if I remember rightly. I know I've so heard someone else me. Okay. Yeah, Have I you. know. What can you do? Uh, there we go. Uh, Daniel, so much fun as always. Thank you so much for that. I, I apologize for some of the company you're going to be keeping on Mars, but I know once you get up there, you'll keep them all in line. <laughs> Daniel, just for the people out there listening that may not uh, be familiar with you, I, I'd, I'd be amazed if there are any, but just for those guys, just, uh, just let them know how they can read more of your writing because anyone who's interested in the Federal Reserve – and how they, uh, how they, the part they play in modern finance should be reading your stuff. So just let them know how to find you. Oh, absolutely. Uh, first of all, follow me on Twitter. It is never boring, at Demartino Booth. That's D-I-M-A-R-T-I-N-O. And then that's the same as my website address, demartinobooth.com, the whole thing together. Go on a trial subscription. It gives you access to the archives. You can go back and read the greater moderation, and you can get as outraged as I am. <laughs> there you go and I, again I will reiterate everybody who's not doing that should do that Danielle thank you so much for joining us uh, it's always it's always fun ch- ch- talking to you whether it's in person or over the phone so thanks for your time absolutely thank you Grant now it's time for our things I got wrong segment and uh, we are going to ask uh, Miles to pull double duty here and tell us about a mistake he's made in his past and hopefully help you learn the lessons from that that he learned the hard way, if we can simplify that process. Uh, so much the better for everybody. So, Miles, let's, uh, let's get into this. So, the mistake I made is a mistake that uh, many of us made uh, from getting bad advice, which was uh, to believe that uh, low-fat was good. So, I was... Uh, I was back in uh, back in the 80s, and uh, oh, low fat is good. So, so I cut all the fat out of my diet, and I I was uh, you know having skim milk on on cereal and a lot and other things like that, and and I gained many many pounds. And uh, now, come to find out much later, and some people haven't gotten the news yet, but it's actually pretty clear. Low fat is exactly the wrong direction. Dietary fat is good, and what's what's bad is uh, the sugar and uh, other refined carbohydrates. And uh, and yet, 
I know everybody hasn't gotten the message because I walk into the grocery store and there's still all this low-fat stuff that's worthless. Low-fat is a worthless idea, actually, um, although the nutritional establishment hasn't totally admitted it because it's it's tough to admit that uh, you were wrong when you're in a position of trust like that. But But it's the truth. I mean, low-fat was a big mistake. It made me a lot fatter than I otherwise would be. And now I've really turn things around by realizing eating fat is good and uh, and eating refined carbs, especially sugar, is, is a big problem. Well, I mean, the, the call back to our conversation about uh, the Federal Reserve is, is just too irresistible. The, the idea of being in a, in a position of authority like that, and it's a very tough thing to, to admit that you were wrong. It takes us right back to where we were a few minutes ago. Yeah, you know, it's funny, in, in, my, in my lifetime, I think I seem to remember red wine being both good for you, then bad for you, then helping you sleep, then stopping you sleep. Um, and it seems to me that these things go in cycles. So who knows? Maybe one day uh, low fat is going to be pronounced bad again. I, I, I won't hold my breath. Um, but uh, it, it's funny how these 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 uh, dietary uh, research work done in various uh, universities around the world come out with such regularity. I'm so confused now about what's good for me and what isn't. Well, I'm not quite sure it's things going back and forth as much as you think. Uh, Basically, the the evidence has been piling up for a long time that low fat is a worthless idea. And basically, the nutritional establishment just didn't want to admit it. So what you think is is people changing their minds is the evidence coming, coming in saying, you know, eating fat is a good thing. And and, the, and 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 the people resisting that. So I, I think there's been less fluctuation, less true fluctuation than you might think. It's that we, the, all the rest of us have been extremely confused because the evidence said that eating fat was good, and uh, and and yet you still had still had all these people who sounded authoritative and continuing to say the opposite despite the evidence. Well, listen, I, I don't know when this ever ends. I, I don't know if we'll ever get a definitive answer on whether fat is good or bad, but uh, I will try and make sure that I maximize the amount of fat in my diet. And if anybody asks me, I'm going to tell them that you told me to do it. So thank you so much for that excuse. It's a, it's a good, great get out of jail free card. <laughs> Uh, Miles, perhaps before before you go, if we could, I'd love to get uh, give the audience a chance to, to find out where they can read your blog and find out a little bit more about your thinking, because I'm sure there's going to be plenty of people with uh, with follow up questions and stuff after listening to this. So perhaps you could tell people how they could uh, how they could follow you and read more of your stuff. Oh well, thank you so much. So so well, if you Google my name, Miles Kimball, you'll you'll see the mail order company, and under that you'll see my blog. <laughs> Uh, on uh, Confessions of a Supply-Side Liberal. So click there. And then once you get to my blog, if you're interested in negative interest rates, I have a a little um, link at the top called Neg Rates. And uh, you can also see a bio there. And I have other interesting links, key posts. But but anyway, Googling my name, you'll very quickly get to my blog. I'm also on Twitter with my own name, at Miles Kimball. And... um, and, uh, you know, if you find me on Twitter, you'll see all the stuff I'm thinking about and you'll get links to all my blog posts and everything. So, so it's, uh, and actually I should, <laughs> I should mention one of the things that I was pleased by, and I'm not quite sure what it means is, uh, there is an account, uh, Jerome H. Powell 
that's been in existence since 2011 that seems to be following me on Twitter, though it's a locked account. So right. I can't see exactly what's going on. So, so I'd be very pleased if, uh, if, if Powell was following me. But, but anyway, th- think as if he is. Uh, maybe you should follow me too. Well, there you go. Well, I, if, if, if I ever run into him, I will make sure that I give him that tip. Miles, thank you again so much for joining us. It's been tremendous fun. Thank you. All right, well, sadly, that concludes yet another episode of Adventures in Finance. Uh, Fascinating conversations all around. I've I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Before we leave you, the usual legal disclaimer, anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So please do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, and always place your stops. And please trade responsibly. Now, next week, we will be doing something really special. We're going to have three of our contributors from Real Vision Publications join us. Larry McDonald of the Bear Traps Report, Tony Greer of TG Macro, and Malia Bengali of the MB Commodity Corner. And we're going to talk to each of them about uh, what they are focusing on and what they believe you guys should be looking at. Uh, That'll be a lot of fun. Uh, Three really, really interesting, very, very smart people. And while we're on the subject of Real Vision Publications, we have some exciting news about that for you next week. But... I'm afraid, I hate to be the tease, but you will have to wait until next week to hear what it is. In the meantime, between now and then, if you've got an interesting question about this week's show or any of the conversations you've heard, then we would love to hear it. So please do send us an email or a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. And once more, I'd love to put my shout out again. The Tesla bulls out there, come on. I want a bull to come on and tell me why the company's going to succeed. Not why the stock price might go up but why the company is going to succeed. So please don't be shy. Uh, You don't have to go on air. We will absolutely paraphrase it for you if you'd rather do that, but calling all Tesla bulls. If you enjoyed what you heard this week or on any other episode of Adventures in Finance, then please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review because, you know, apparently that's what you do. To keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and, of course, podcast episodes, then follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. And you will also find us if you scour the dark back rooms of facebook and linkedin just search for real vision you can follow me on twitter at ttmygh and also you can follow me at aif james yes you can i've done it it's riveting stuff i can't tell you how much i enjoy it that's it from us we will see you next week thank you so much for listening podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com